It's good to see you this morning. I just want to remind you that we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper again this second Sunday in uh, Lent. Just reflect upon uh, Christ and Him crucified uh, just uh, once, once again. Well, I always enjoy asking married couples their story. And I just want to know about how they met each other and how they, they came to marry one another. And it's an easy question. It's a natural question, especially if you don't know people very well. And it opens up a lot of avenues to uh, pursue conversations. And oftentimes it's filled with laughs, depending upon the, the circumstances. But their, their stories are, are varied, but they're almost always interesting. Some met in high school. Some met in college. Some didn't meet until their, their 40s. Some knew each other since they were little children. Some met in a nightclub. Some met by an advertisement in the newspaper. Uh, some were introduced by family and some by friends. Some before they were Christians and some after they were Christians. Some married young. Some married old. Some married very quickly after they met. And some took a long time before the guy got a clue that they should marry. Some eloped and some had big, ornate, elaborate weddings. Some were married um, before. For some, this was the first marriage. Now, as varied as these stories are, they're always essentially the same. In the, the fact that at one point, they, they heard one another and about one another and then they, they met one another and then they liked one another and start communicating with each other and then they began to spend a little bit more time with each other and then more and more time and finally they decided to spend the rest of their lives together and in the process of this ever increasing knowledge of each other they come more and more as the years go by to just learn of each other and know each other more and there's not a married couple today that can't say they know each other better now than they did the day that they were were married and it's because marriage is like that it's like one long educational session in fact, I tell those who are in marriage counseling that we do wedding premarital counseling. Uh, I often say to the man, I, I address him, and let's just let's just say we have John and Mary. I say, uh, John, now here's one of the things you're signing up for when you get married: is that you are signing up for getting a doctorate in Mariology, studying Mary. And, and so, Mary, I, I look at her and I say, Mary, one of the things you're signing up for is to get a doctorate in Johnology. Just to be an expert in John, to know everything about him, to know everything about her. I, I say to the husband, you need to know everything about her. You need to know her likes and her dislikes, her strengths and weaknesses, her expectations, her dreams, what feelings are important to her, right? What family, what's her family, her former experiences, or what's she going through now? And for all of you, men and women married here in this room, you, you are in a, a course of study right now. I'm, I'm in Avonology, is what I'm studying, and Avon is in Steveology, and Jeff is in Linology, and SR, we don't know what he's in yet, but he'll be in something. And, and everyone has a different ology of married couples that you're, you're studying. And I just say this, the deeper and deeper you pursue knowledge of your spouse, the better and better will your marriage be just how it works. The deeper you go in knowledge of your spouse, the better your marriage is. Well, this morning we're not going to be um, looking into marriage, talking about marriage. Actually, we're going to be looking into another relationship that has parallels to the marriage relationship. We're going to look at your relationship as a believer in Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those who believe in Jesus experience much the same process. Right? At some point, people come to hear about Jesus and then they begin to investigate and figure out what, what Jesus is all about. Maybe by reading the Bible or by you know, reading some Christian book or by maybe watching some movie like the Son of God movie that is out in, in recent days. And then as you come to know more, you, you come to trust His message. You get married, if you will, because you repent of your sin. You believe in Jesus and you say, Christ, I am yours. I will follow you until my dying days. And over the years... You come to know more and more and more of Jesus. And the deeper you pursue your knowledge of Christ, the better your walk with the Lord will be. 
Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We are in just one verse this week. I was hoping to preach two verses, but this one verse is going to satisfy us certainly this morning. Chapter 3, verse 10. Next week, I will go a little faster, probably 11 through at least 14, maybe through 16, because it all talks about sanctification and pursuing Christ in light of the, the resurrection. But this morning, we just get one verse and let's just savor. Let's just savor this verse this morning. This verse Paul's modeling for us how a believer should long to know Jesus. He says this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Let's just read it again. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Now, like all verses in the Bible, this verse comes in context. Paul, at the beginning of chapter 3, is, is uh, warning the Philippians about these false teachers. He calls them dogs in verse 2. He calls them evil workers and the false circumcision. These were religious folk who were placing great confidence in their fleshly accomplishments. They were placing confidence in their circumcision or in their earthly righteousness. And then in verse 4, Paul segues a bit to his own testimony. And he says, listen, I've got religious works. And in his own religious works, he regarded as nothing, he said. He didn't trust his circumcision or his tribal origin or his national status or his religious reputation or his education or his religious zeal or his righteousness. He said all these things, none of them compare to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He culminates in verse eight. We looked at last week, eight and nine. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And Paul is saying in these, these two verses, he's saying that, that knowing Christ is everything. He says that he, all is lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8. It's because knowing Christ is eternal life. John 17, verse 3. And not knowing Christ is eternal damnation. You remember when Jesus described those seeking to enter heaven based on their merit? That they said, Lord, Lord, look at all these things we did. Didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's this, this knowledge going on that, that if you if you know Jesus, that's eternal life. And if Jesus doesn't know you and thereby you don't know him, it's eternal Destruction and damnation. That's why knowing Jesus is of all importance. Your eternity rests on this fact. And so I, I just ask you, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Or are you like those to whom Jesus spoke? You have a lot of righteous deeds or a lot of religious deeds. Attend church frequently. Even maybe read your Bible, but devoid of a genuine knowledge of Christ. And last week you saw Paul's perspective in knowing Christ. It's, it's more valuable than anything you possess. Material treasures, righteous deeds, religious knowledge, maybe even a passion for God. But all is lost apart from knowing Jesus. And that's Paul's point here in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Last week my message was entitled, The Value of Knowing Christ in our text this week, though, we have a longing because Paul is saying how, how, how great knowing Christ is, but he longs to know Christ. That's what verse 10 is saying. And I, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. My message this week is, called, is entitled The Pursuit of Knowing Christ because that's really what's happening here. The value in verses 8 and 9 and now the pursuit in verse 10 and really, it comes in those five words, that I may know Him. You just sense the longing of Paul's heart. Now, this isn't longing for knowing Him unto salvation. 
Paul wrote this epistle maybe some 20 years after he was saved. What he's talking about here is is knowing Jesus for experience, knowing Jesus for delight, satisfaction, joy, and for sanctification in this life is what he's talking about. And the reality is this, all who possess Christ will pursue Christ. All who possess Christ will pursue Christ. And and Paul's knowing of Christ in this verse is a bit like a husband's knowledge of his wife. Yes, they knew each other before they were married. And as they got married, of course, they began to know each other more intimately. And as the years have worn on, though, husband and wife come to know each other more and more and more. And in those good marriages, it's the husband's desire to know his wife more. It's the wife's desire to know his husband more, deeper and deeper, day by day. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 10. He's talking about ever-deepening knowledge of Christ. That's my first point, knowing Him. Knowing Him. Now, this ought to be the desire of all of us here this morning, to know Him. Right? If you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, this ought to be your desire. Because knowing Christ is your only hope for joy in this life, because life will disappoint you. There's a lot of things about life that is disappointing, but there's only one who will not disappoint, and that's Jesus. And knowing Jesus is your only hope for ultimate joy in the life to come. When Jesus receives those who've trusted Him and who've served Him, what He says, He says, well done, faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Master. As Psalm 16, verse 11 says, in His presence as pleasures forevermore. Do you know Jesus? Do you... Do you have a desire to know Him greater? It's He who bore our sins in His body on the cross and we must believe in Him. And, and according to verse 9, when we do, God will take our faith and consider us righteousness so that we might stand before God. And I say this, if you know Jesus, do you, do you really want to know Him? G.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, appropriate, I read from this here this morning, speaks in chapter 3 right at the beginning. He says, what were we made for? To know God is His answer. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God is His answer. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. And they quote from John 17.3, which I have quoted from last week and here again this week. This is life eternal that they may know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Then he asks another question. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? He answers, the knowledge of God. Then quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him that boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees in man gives him the most pleasure? His answer, knowledge of himself. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In these few sentences, we have said a very great deal. What we have said provides at once a foundation, shape, and goal for our lives plus a principle of priorities and a scale of values. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Knowing God. Do you know Him? Do you pursue Him? See, God created us as image bearers to be in relationship with Him. That's one of the things that sets... Mankind, apart from the animals, is that we can have relationship. And when we don't have relationship, something's dreadfully wrong. In Psalm 42, we we find the, the psalmist away from God and away from the people of God. He's in desperation and despair and he knows something's wrong. And thus he says this, you guys know well, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He wants to be in God's presence with God's people. He wants to be with God. He wants to know God. But that's not the case right now. He's apart from that. and He's like the deer who's thirsty and longing for the water brooks. He's longing to be with God and to know God, panting for Him. 
And that longing, thirsting, hungering is thoroughly biblical. David cried out in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, You are my God. I will seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You. You just see a longing and a thirsting for God. He says, In a dry and weary land, God, I'm longing for You. Now, now think about it. David was no stranger to the Lord. He walked with Him daily. But he longed to be satisfied by God's presence. And he knew the Lord and therefore, he was following hard after God. Psalm 63, verse 8. You remember when Moses was in the wilderness and Israel sinned by worshiping the golden calf? <clears throat> Moses was up on the mountain. He came down, saw that was happening. It was a real difficult time. Moses was distressed. And he went before the Lord and he pleaded for his grace. Listen to what he says. Exodus 33, verse 13. I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. Right? Let, let me know the way that you act that I can have insight into knowing you. Now, now catch this. This was after Moses saw the ten plagues poured out upon Egypt. This is after Moses went up the mountain the first time and got the Ten Commandments and came down. This was after Moses went up the second time was up there for 40 days coming down. He then prays, let me know your ways that I may know you. And that's exactly the heart that Paul has here. He knows Jesus, yes, but he longs to know Him in a, in a greater way. And I just say, is that your heart? Do you have a longing for Christ like Paul has? Are you pursuing Christ? Can you say with Paul, that I may know Him? Is that the goal and aim and purpose of your life? You know, a, a good life strategy might, this, might be this. Is to know Christ and to make Him known. You know, that sounds an awful lot like our mission statement as a church. Our mission statement is what? To enjoy His grace and to extend His glory. What does it mean to enjoy His grace but to know Him? And what does it mean to extend His glory but to make Him known? Just saying it different, right? That I may know Him. In fact, let's say this together. That I may know Him. Let's say it again. That I may know Him. I trust that's a genuine prayer from your heart. Now, now, that's not knowing about Him. It's not that I might know about Him. No, this is knowing God. This is communion. This is relationship. You say, how do you do that? Well, let me ask you. Husbands, how do you know your wives? Wives, how do you know your husbands? Isn't it spending time? Isn't it talking? Isn't it Listening, isn't it asking questions? Isn't it learning about your spouse? Isn't it acting and then finding out, watching how your spouse responds to things? It's the same way with God, but we just can't interact with Him on a human level like we interact with people. But He has given us a book to read. It's filled with lots to read. We can listen to Him. We can learn about Him. And He has promised to hear our prayers. They're offered in faith. So we, we can talk with God and we can share our hearts with God. It's really as simple as that. Bible reading and prayer. Bible reading, we read and listen to God. Praying, we, we speak to God. We talk with Him. We cry out to Him. And, and let me say that these two things need to go together. There are plenty of people who read the Bible apart from praying. And they know the Bible far better than any of us know the Bible. These are called liberal professors who don't believe the Bible at all. They just love ancient literature and so they study their Hebrew and their, their Greek and they're fascinated by it. They don't believe it at all because they're not praying while they're reading. You've got to really recouple these two things together. When you read your Bible, read it prayerfully. Ready to learn. Ready to believe. Ready to obey. And have this, this divine conversation when you read Right? So, so when it says a command, you say, God, I'm ready. Help me. And constantly praying, help me understand, God. Help me, commun help me understand. Help me to know You. That's how simple it is. Now, it takes time. But if you really want Jesus, if you really say that I may know Him, you'll find the time. Because relationships take time and cultivation. Uh, again, like a married couple... In love. I, I've heard this said before, and this is quick marriage counseling for all of you out there. 15 minutes a day, an hour a week, a day a month, and a weekend a year. 
just spending consistent time every day. And then, you know, every week, maybe a little bit more. And every month, maybe, maybe a little bit more. And every year, maybe a, a little bit more. Where you and your spouse can just devote your time to one another, just, just reconnecting and, and recharging and reinforcing your relationship. And, and I say with the Lord, it's the same thing. Bible and prayer every day. It's a little bit, but there are seasons when you spend longer times. Maybe there's a time each week where you can spend just an, an hour devoted to the Lord. Or maybe, maybe even throughout the course of a month, just, just maybe a day, some Saturday, you just you do what you can. Or just much reading or whatever you can. Just, just the idea there is just a little bit all the time and then just there are, there are some bigger times when you can reconnect and just know. And here's what I've observed over the years is that those with the closest walk with Jesus know their Bibles the best. And those the closest walk with the Lord are those who are most in communion with Him through prayer. This is how it works. If you want to be close to the Lord, if you want to really say that I may know Him, it takes time. You just can't, you can't get around it. And those you know who are the strongest, I would contend that they are the ones who are in the Bible and praying a lot because relationships take time and cultivation. Well, let's move on. The pursuit of knowing Christ isn't merely about knowing Him, though that's everything. But it's also knowing, as Paul says here, two other things that he really longs to know. First, it's about knowing His... Second, it's about knowing His resurrection power. See that in the second phrase of verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Now, the resurrection, without a doubt, was powerful. Uh, just think of some things that showed its power. And first thing that came to my mind was a lady's visiting the tomb. They're, they're on their way to the tomb and they're, they're worried. They're asking themselves. They said, well, who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And Mark comments, the stone was extremely large. But when they got there, the stone was rolled away. The resurrection had power to roll a stone away. Just a little thing. When I think of the power of the resurrection, I think about the effect on the witnesses to that event. The effect on the guards. See, when the guards saw what would happen, and these were, these were tough Roman guards who would, would pay the penalty with their lives if someone escaped. And when the guards saw what happened, they shook with fear and became like dead men. These are like army soldiers so afraid. That's the power of the resurrection. Or consider the effect of the resurrection on the, the body of Jesus. And, and, and perhaps this is the one that stirs my heart in, in many ways. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, He was really dead. And those who placed Jesus in the tomb knew full well He was dead. He hadn't fainted. As, as they took His body from the, the place of the crucifixion into the tomb, they, they could feel the heat leaving His body. About two and a half degrees Fahrenheit every hour, they say. It gets colder and colder and colder. And by the time he's in the tomb, three days, his body was room temperature. Cold, clammy, damp. He'd been in a cold, dark place. Rigor mortis set in. All the normal processes would have ceased to, uh, to take place. Gravity would have brought the blood from the, the top of his body down to the lower part. So the top of his body was pale and the bottom of his body was more reddish in color. No respiration, no blood flow, no synthesis of proteins, no cell metabolism. His body was organic protoplasm. But the resurrection reversed all of that. The, the biological mechanisms in his body just all started working together again. Jesus began breathing. His blood began flowing Oxygen was reaching the members of his body. His body temperature rose and he got up. He sat up and arose from the tomb, scaring the living daylights out of the guards, greeting the women who had come, and spending 40 days with his disciples, talking them and teaching them about the kingdom of God, eating with them, and showing himself by many convincing proofs that he was indeed alive. That was the power of the resurrection, to take this dead corpse and to raise it to life. When Paul talks here about the power of the resurrection, I, I don't think this is exactly what he has in mind. He doesn't say, oh, I need to know what it's like to be physically dead and, and raised to life. No, he's talking about the effect that that had on, on other people in many ways. And so I just think about those who saw the living Christ 
how they were filled with the Holy Spirit, enabled to live lives fully to the glory of God. I think about the change that took place in the apostles after the death of Jesus. They were fearful of the Jews. They had closed themselves into a, a room, locked, shut the doors, held tight, perhaps locked. And Jesus came among them. And then when they saw the risen Jesus, those who were fearful of a drop of a pin became bold as a lion. The effect on people is the boldness of the apostles. The Sanhedrin didn't understand it. They saw Peter and John, whom they knew to be uneducated and untrained. But they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus after the resurrection, and that changed everything. So they're boldly proclaiming in Jesus the only way to salvation. And where did it land them? It landed them in prison. Yet many of them were willing to die for the Gospel of Christ. The power of the resurrection is empower to empower you to speak boldly for Christ. You see the video of Ryan McDowell in the Weekly Word preaching out there at the Miley Cyrus conference. How many of y'all saw that? It's encouraging, wasn't it? I think that's the resurrection power that allows people to to preach like that, to be bold. But pursuing His resurrection power, I think anything that comes to mind is a sanctifying work that the resurrected Christ does in us. Because I, I think that's what Paul has in mind. About, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Just what, what, what is it that, that Christ in me does? And primarily that works itself out in sanctification. I say that, you know, let me just turn this off again. How about guys? Just, just killing you guys. Um... Because he's talking here about his sanctification, the resurrection, and what that does here in the following, in 12 and following. But he talks here about, in other places, Paul talks about how when we believe in Jesus, yes, we get his righteousness by faith, but we also join in his resurrection. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 speak about how we've been made alive together with Christ. And that we have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been made alive in Christ. We who are dead in our sins were made alive. Now we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But we're, we're here on earth. Well, Paul says we are, we are raised up. It's because we so join Him in His resurrection that it's like we are, are raised up and with Him. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus right now. It's not that we died physically. It's we're dead spiritually. In fact, we went over that in prayer meeting this morning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. Without God, without hope in this world, but by grace through faith, God gives us new life. It's as if we are raised from the dead. It's as if we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And in Ephesians 1, Paul's praying that we might understand the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe, which is in accordance with the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The, the resurrection power raised Jesus from the dead, sat Him in heaven, and that's the same power that works in our life for those who believe. And the result is it's a life that pursues the Lord. That's what Paul said in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we, we've been raised up, so let's seek the life up there. And what's a life up there look like? A few verses later, Paul says in Colossians 3.5, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. The power of the resurrected life is the ability to overcome sin and, and, and to walk in a righteous way rather than in a wicked way. And that's what Paul's, I think, primarily talking about here. He's talking about that I might know Jesus, I might commune with Him, I might know the power of the resurrection. That's the power of a raised, transformed life that lives more holy to Him. And one of the clearest passages of that is found in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read an extended portion of it. I want you to listen to how Paul just says, yes, we were dead, but God made us alive. And having been made alive together with Christ now, we ought to walk in righteousness. We ought not to serve the flesh like we did in our dead days, but now that we are alive, we ought to walk in newness of life. Paul says, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, Night through faith and trust in Him, we are buried with Him. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, 
When Christ on the cross, we believe and trust there's some sense where we were with Him, united with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, Paul says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your moral bodies, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. I hope you see the connection there. This the power of the resurrection stirs our heart aright that then we walk in newness of life. That's Paul's main point. It's the power of the resurrection. And and let me just show you, even he says, like in chapter 3, verse 14, he speaks about, about pressing on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's like he's pursuing God, he's pursuing Christ. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, the opposite comes in verse 19. Their end is destruction, these enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their appetite and glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. He's talking about these enemies of the cross of Christ are, are sinful, engaging the desires of the flesh. But that's not the, the friend of Christ, the one who knows Christ or the resurrected power. The one who has the resurrected power pursues the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And opposed to them, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. For it's also we eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will change us. Do you know Him? Do you know His resurrected power? Do you see the resurrected power working in your life, overcoming your sin? Do you want more? I just say this. I say, pursue His resurrection power, right? Pursue and think hard about the resurrection of Christ. Pray alongside of Paul. It says, to God, Christ has been raised from the dead, so raise my body from, from the sin that I, might, that I might serve you. And Paul does that in Romans 7. He, he sees the battle. He says, wretched man that I am, who will separate me from this body that is death? He's there, but he's longing to be with Christ. So think long and hard about Easter, even this Lenten season. Five more weeks till Easter. Just, just think about the resurrection and think about that power in your life. Well, let's move on to my third point. Pursue the knowledge of Christ is found in knowing Him, in knowing the power of His resurrection, and thirdly, in knowing His sufferings. Just read for you verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Now, what a strange desire Paul has. And what a strange desire I'm calling you to have. Paul says in verse 17, join in following my example. And, and so as, as Paul says, this is what I'm longing for, I would contend this is what you also ought to long for as well. To know his sufferings. Say, so what does that mean? Well, let's, let's go back to the marriage analogy. If you want to know your spouse, walk in his or her shoes. Well, you, you can't really because... Most of your wives would look like clowns if you wear your husband's shoes. I'm not talking about that litter, but I, I'm talking about just get in their situation of life. Find out what they're experiencing as much as you can. Share in that. As most all of you know, um, Yvonne and my three older children were, were gone this week, took a quick trip to Los Angeles and uh, by way of Phoenix so they could visit Grandma and Grandpa and then drove to Los Angeles. And How, how long were you gone, SR? He was gone like four weeks. It was really only seven days, but it seemed like four weeks because they, they did so much. And um, as a result, I was a single dad with my two youngest children. It means that I had to balance uh, work and home life. It means if something was going to get done around the house, I was responsible for that. And without my efforts, the house was going to be a mess. Well, I must admit... Um, we had it pretty easy. I mean, everything in the home was, was all, all set. The laundry was done for a week. Shopping was all done. 
So Yvonne put several meals in the freezer for us to enjoy, and so I, I, I kind of walked in her shoes, but, but not really. And, um, but, the, but the fact that there was some jealousy, perhaps the kids, uh, Stephanie especially wanted to fly on an airplane. Um, she didn't get to do that. With some jealousy, I, I wanted to make sure that we had some fun. And so we went to the Lego movie, had a, had a good time at that. We rented a few movies and watched them at home on the big screen, complete with popcorn and the fixings. We took a trip to Walmart. I put that in the Weekly Word, if you guys saw that. Did you take my little quiz? Had a, had a lot of sugar. We said, okay, which, which, which cereal do you want? We just went down the cereal. I said, okay, which cereal do you want? So they grabbed the cereal of their choice, along with a multitude of other fun snacks. We took a walk on one of those warm days. In, in fact, um, uh, we, we went out to dinner a couple times. We went to Lino's one day after Kids Club. We went to Chick-fil-A after Kids Club. And um, didn't even touch Avon's freezer meals. Which we had Friday when they, they came home. Um, so we, we, weren't, we weren't hurting hurting very bad. We were planning to go ice skating, but I messed up on the schedule. And uh, so I promised Steffi that I would, I would take her again, make good of my promise. And, and you know what? I don't think the little guys missed their mom and the roller guys at all because we had a blast. But... I, I would say, though, I, I got a small taste of uh, what Yvonne goes through on a daily basis and all the ways she serves her family so well that um, our house is cleaner today than it was when she got home, that's for sure. Um, you know, I was, But I tidied things up every night, even took some pictures for her, and that was, that was a change from other times when I've been home alone. Um, and and even, even some things where, you know, I just, I just saw what... What Yvonne does. And I just appreciate that. And my time alone without Yvonne reminded me afresh of the difficulties, though, of a single parent. Just how hard it is. Are we married to a deadbeat husband or wife? How hard it is to do everything. And in some regards, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, there's no way we can enter into the sufferings of Jesus. He bore the penalty for our sins. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Not on us. Jesus is the one who faced the greatest injustice anyone ever faced. I mean, of anyone who walked the planet, Jesus deserved praise and reward. And what did He receive? He received mockings and scourgings and insults and crucifixion. And the crucifixion wasn't merely physical, it was also spiritual as well as God's wrath that we deserved fell upon Him. Right? Jesus deserved life but received death. We deserve death, but we get life through faith in Him because He was punished for our sins. And Paul says that I may know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. So what does it mean to have fellowship of His sufferings if, it, if we don't atone for our sins? Well, I think you just look at the word fellowship. We've seen this before in chapter 1, verse 5 of Philippians. When Paul was thanking God... For the Philippians, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Or literally, as the King James says it, from the fellowship of the gospel from the first day until now. The ESV and NIV read, in view of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership, participation, fellowship. It just means joining and sharing. It means that we join in with the sufferings of Christ. It doesn't mean that we atone for our sins or for the sins of others, but... Only God can do that, but it means we enter into the shoes of Christ as His ambassadors and face similar sufferings. Following Jesus in a world that hates you will bring similar sufferings to what Jesus felt. Because see, the world hates God, and since it hates God, it hates God followers. And we'll speak against it. If you want to hear, Chuck Dean had an experience of that when he was at the Miley Cyrus concert. A man came up to him, didn't, doesn't love God, doesn't like God, kind of got nearful, didn't like what they were doing. That's what the early church experienced. Remember Peter and John, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Peter preached Jesus to the multitudes. It landed Peter and John in prison. As I said, flogged, whipped, chastised. Stephen preached Jesus and was martyred for it. 
John was put to death with a sword for following Jesus. Peter nearly experienced the same fate on that night. And Paul is no stranger to sufferings. Since his conversion on the road to Damascus, shortly afterwards he began to preach Christ right there in Damascus. And the Jews hated it. They plotted right then and there to kill him. It seemed like just a matter of days. They said, no, we need to stop this guy. And so they all stationed themselves around the gates of the city, watching the gates 24-7 to see when he might leave the city. They might put him to death. And it was only because Paul was let down over the wall through an opening in the wall through a large basket that he was able to escape. And his mission journeys were filled with sufferings. I mean, he, he was kicked out of almost every city he went to. Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, booted from all those cities. Found him imprisoned in Philippi. He was ready to leave Corinth for the same reason, just because that's always. He always went, preached, an uproar, and then he was kicked out. He had to leave. And he was ready to leave. And, Paul, and God says this. He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Like Paul was ready to leave. And God said, no, 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 you wait here because they won't harm you like they did in the other cities. Because I have people here who need to hear the gospel because they're going to be saved when the, the message of life comes to them. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 speaks of his sufferings, how he's beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times receiving from the Jews, 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once with stone, three times shipwrecked, a day and night spent in the deep, Frequent journeys, dangers from rivers and robbers and countrymen and Gentiles and the city and the wilderness and the sea and dangers among the false brethren. He says, I've been labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, all for bringing the gospel to people. He knew what suffering was about. He knew that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and he had these sleepless nights as well. He knew what it was to be deprived like the, the Son of Man and he was as well. In some regards, Paul shared the sufferings of Christ. And it wasn't pleasant. But I ask this, why would Paul so long to know the sufferings of Christ? Why would he long for that? Well, I have two answers. First of all, there's blessing in suffering for Christ. Jesus promised, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a blessing in that. And, and one of the things I didn't share about Peter and John, when they were in prison before the Sanhedrin, and they were whipped and flogged, they went forth, Acts 5.41, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin and their suffering and their flogging and their whipping with scars on their back and bleeding backs, they went forth rejoicing that they had considered, been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Because there is blessing in suffering. And any of you who have faced the scorn of the world because you're a follower of Jesus knows that blessing. Oh, it's not pleasant when you're going through it. But kind of afterwards, you're like, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. They hated Jesus, so also they hate me. I'm, I'm on His side. This is, this is okay, Lord. I'm, I'm content to walk in Your ways. And Paul knew suffering was a gift. Chapter 1, verse 29. We looked at that several months back. For to you it has been granted. In other words, it's been given to you for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. In other words, God gives faith to believe. And he also gives suffering for his sake. And his suffering that he gives is every bit the gift that his faith is to you to believe. Because it brings great blessing. So why would Paul why would Paul so long for suffering? I think because he knows that in the end of the blessing that it brings to his life. But I have a second reason why Paul longed to share the sufferings of Christ, which is really the spirit of this text, which really I think is more along lines of what he's talking about. I think suffering like Jesus brings us into a greater knowledge of Christ. Paul says, if he says that I may know him, one way to know him is through sufferings. 
G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, do not miss the blessedness of the fact that fellowship of his sufferings means that he has fellowship with us. Right. When we share in the sufferings of Christ, Christ will share in the experience with us. When I enter into the fellowship of sufferings, I am not alone. For he is forever with me. I just think about those verses that speak about. He who gives a, a cup of a cold water in my name does it to me. Right? You, what, what, what you do to the little ones or what you do to the weak or despised or naked or imprisoned or, or cold. Jesus says you do it to me because there's a sense where he he's right with them. And so likewise, also, when you are persecuted, he is with the persecuted people. He, he said at the end of um, Matthew's gospel, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is especially apparent in suffering. G. Campbell Morgan goes on, I can endure no pain for him, but he does not, but that he does not share with me. When I stand in the presence of sin and suffer, if I have climbed high enough, in that moment he is with me. He is feeling the same pain. He is suffering with me. Remember, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm I'm right there. There is a fellowship that, that takes place. And I think that's some of what he's talking about here, about his sufferings, about being conformed to his death. And the Bible speaks about when we, we come to faith in Christ, God is working in us so as to conform us to the image of his Son. Second um, Corinthians three eighteen speaks about that. Romans eight. 28, 29 speaks about that, that we're being conformed to the image of His Son. Well, what's part of the image of His Son is the death of Christ. And I think that as we suffer with Jesus, we become more and more conformed to His death. We become more and more shaped into His death. We become more and more knowing what it was like to die with Jesus so that we might live with Him. You know, there's there's such a way that, you know, in death you're just done with everything. You, you're It's over done and, and suffering brings you that point and it lets you just just let go of the, the things of the world which is a, it's a benefit of that and, and you know in a few moments we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper reflecting upon the death of Jesus and I think it's really appropriate here even to think about his sufferings being conformed to his death because in celebrating the Lord's Supper we, we may not share in his sufferings but we certainly can remember them we can think back again to his sacrifice. But here about being conformed to his death. One of the songs that we'll sing as we just prepare our hearts is a, a song called It Is Not Death to Die. We, we've sung it several times here at Rock Valley Bible Church. It says this, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. So I said a few moments ago that after you die, it's over. Well, it's over in one sense. Your earthly sufferings and sorrows are over. But Paul says, I do not consider the sufferings of this present world worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come in Christ. And that's what this, this hymn is saying. It's not death. When you die, it's not death. Because there's more and the chorus says, O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Verse 2, it is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. It's, it's not death to release us from this life to be with Christ forever. Now, I was, I was thinking about those words. I said, you know what? You don't write those words unless you face some suffering yourself. Um, the only reason you write those words is because you're meditating upon your own death, you're meditating upon your own hardship, and you're putting your life and your hardship in perspective. And so I, I just looked up a little bit to see who wrote this hymn, and sure enough, I was right. Henry Mullen wrote this hymn. And he knew what it was to suffer for Christ. Now, I only know a little bit about him. I've not done a lot of research on him. But just what little I read, what little I know, speaks of the suffering he experienced. He was born in 1787 in Geneva, Switzerland. 
entered the ministry at age 23 in 1810. Eight years later, after he'd been preaching for a while, there's one particular sermon he preached on justification by faith alone. Maybe like my sermon last week. And um, as a result of that message, he was suspended from the ministry. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't even know what denomination he was. It'll just, it means that the, the greater church heard that he was preaching on justification by faith alone and said, zip, suspend him. And then there's some restoration process there. Uh, I'm, I don't know exactly what that, that meant. So he continued his ministry. And a few years later, he kept preaching that same thing, justification by faith alone, similar doctrinal preaching. And he was defrocked. That means kicked out of the church or kicked out of his denomination or kicked out because of his higher authority. He said, no, no, you can't, you can't be preaching that way. Now, that's all I know about his life. And then, then I do know he was involved in some kind of um, um, revival kind of ministries and he had some other kind of church. And, but, but there's certainly much more to his story of what was going on in his life to just get kicked out of the church. And I imagine that he knew a fair bit of what suffering for Christ meant. And that's why he wrote, it is not death to die. Willing to suffer, finding the joy in that, and seeking to pass that on to us. And I I just say this, as we think of the Lord's Supper, as we think of Christ crucified, dead, and buried, we think about taking the bread and taking the cup just like He told us to do. May it cause us to reflect upon the sufferings of Christ. May it give us even a hope for His resurrection. I mean, next week we'll be looking at verse 11. Why, why is He longing to know Jesus? Why is He longing to know this power of the resurrection? Why is He longing to know of the sufferings of Jesus? Here it is, verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Just that that's where I would get. That's where I would be. He longs to be raised from the dead. And then he talks about resurrection becoming perfect, pressing on for what Christ has done. But we'll look at that next week. But that's our aim. It's to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sufferings. Do you have that longing? Do you long to know Him? Even us, we celebrate the supper. If you're a believer in Christ, certainly celebrate with us. And and just, just pray even, maybe while you hold the bread, hold the cup. Oh Lord, that I may know You. That I may know You. Help me to know you in a deeper, deeper way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look now to your word, as we look now to your supper, I pray you'd help us look beyond these elements to you of what you did and accomplished on the cross and realize that in some measure we have died with you when you died. And help us to remember that when You raised, we were raised. That You might give us victory over sin. That You might give us a sweet fellowship with You. And that through the sufferings of this present life, because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and through the sufferings that we have, through the name of Christ, I pray You'd strengthen us. God, to so live and so long for You. Help us now, Lord, as we, again, just a second week in a row, we'll do this Four more times after this, just reflecting upon the death of Christ. Be with us and be sweet to us. Lead us into communion with You, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.